Take your copy of God's Holy Word and turn to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. It was the scandal that shook First Baptist Church of Zachary. The scandal that occurred. We had been basically unscathed for quite a while. Fortunately, the church had been through difficult times, but there for a while, it seemed like everything was going well. Until one Sunday, one Sunday, well, it started off a blessing. 8.30 service had come, and it had gone. And after, or right before the 8.30 service, this generous lady had come up to her pastor, and she had said to her pastor, Brother Reggie, I have for you a lemon icebox pie. To which I pronounced blessing upon her and thanked her in a great way. So being that I had to preach an 8.30 service and then teach a Sunday school class and then preach an 11 o'clock service, I suggested to her that it might be the best if she would take that lemon icebox pie and put it in a refrigerator in the fellowship hall. You know where I'm going with this, don't you? Immediately after I completed my message in the 11 o'clock service, I realized it was time to go home, time to enjoy the wonderful meal that my wife had fixed for me. I'm sure it was. It had to be that day. I don't remember the meal in particular. But it had to be a wonderful meal that my wife had prepared for me and that I was going to uh, finish it off with a dessert with a lemon ice box pie that had been made so meticulously by this lady. I went to that refrigerator and it was gone. One of those who had attended First Baptist Church of Zachary. One of its members or prospects had gone into that refrigerator and taken my lemon ice box pie. I didn't say a word. I didn't say a word for a while. Why? Because Miss Billy, the lady that had given me this, was a very firm lady. And if she had known I had lost her lemon ice box pie or treated her or treated it so in such a neglectful way, I would never receive another one. So I never said a word until her funeral. And when Miss Billy passed away, I had to confess at her service that I lost her lemon icebox pie. I'll never forget it. But it was a scandal. I had the staff looking for people that they suspected of getting it. We talked about it. We prayed about it for a few days. I'm serious. We had something had to give. If we had thieves among us, we had to pray them out. Repentance. To this day, nobody's ever confessed. I still hold out that the new pastor has better uh, convicting skills than I do. And perhaps one of these days they will admit it and it will come clean. But the scandal that shook. Now, seriously, we know there are times when scandal does shake a church's life. Unfortunately, too many of our churches have seen serious conflict and serious scandals. Now, sometimes we have made our own scandals in the church's life. Our own scandals. Just recently, somebody called me and said, Reggie, I can't, I got to tell you what's happening in our church. I said, what's going on? They said, things are just falling apart. I said, well, you mean they're falling apart? What's going on? 
well, the new pastor has come in and there are a lot of things that are changing. It's just going. I said, what are you talking about? Give me an example. They said, for the example, the welcome time. I said, what do you mean about the welcome time? We don't do it anymore. I said, so? Well, the welcome time is one of the most important times in the time of our church to welcome people there. And, and we don't go around and shake hands anymore. I said, you know what? Take a moment. Breathe. Recognize there are greater things to the kingdom than whether or not you have a welcome time on Sunday morning. Now, I like welcome time. I'm not about to stop it. But we create some of our own scandals. Well, the, sometimes uh, when the Lord's Supper, we, we don't cover it like we should. You got that before? Came home one time from a Bible conference. I was in high school. Went to Blue Springs Baptist Church. Uh, that's where I was leading music and youth. And they had a business meeting while I was gone. And it had come up that somebody had put the wrong toner in the copy machine. Now, see, you think it was probably just a fun. You would think you'd just dismiss that, wouldn't you? You think I'm kidding. I believe at least two, maybe three deacons left over that meeting. And you know what I said seriously? I said, thank you, God, I was out of town. But we create scandals. We create things in the churches. We create those kinds of... There are moments that we need to make sure that we are praising the Lord and celebrating His work and not focusing upon all of the logistic, the, the, the smaller things. But we have to be careful. We have to be careful that we do not create places of scandal or places of controversy when God would call us to celebrate. When you look at Acts chapter 11... I think you see the chapter permeated by scandal. It's a scandal that the people in the church have recognized, or that's what they have labeled it anyway. But really, when you see it, when you read through it, you see how God takes this moment and He expresses His wonderful grace. I want you to see this. Acts chapter 11, verse 1, uh, verses 1 through 18. Basically, you have... This story, the story of Acts chapter 10, you have it summarized for you. Notice what he says as Peter's coming back to Jerusalem. It says, now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him. So get this picture. Peter was instructed by God to go to Caesarea, to lead Cornelius and his family to faith in Christ. The Holy Spirit has descended upon them. A wonderful moment in the life of the church. One of the most remarkable events that has ever taken place in the life of the church. And he comes back to a church that you would think would be ready to celebrate. And some of them do. Don't get me wrong here. I believe some of them do. But Dr. Luke speaks about those of the circumcision. Those who had continued to believe that this Christian faith was just simply an extension of their Jewish background and their Jewish practices. So here they are 
in their Jewish culture and their Jewish ritual. And they're thinking to themselves, if people come in and they accept Christ, that's okay. But they have to continue the ritualism of Judaism. And you have to be circumcised. You have to go through all of the practices that would be associated with being a Jew. So the circumcision, those of the circumcision, those people, they come and they contend with Peter. Instead of celebrating, there's contention. And what you have here is a scandal. I mean, this is an open scandal that they would allow the Gentiles to come into the church. They said to him, they said to Peter, you went to, you went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now, this is the big deal. They don't even mention the baptism here. It's the idea that you went and took full fellowship with them. I mean, when you eat with somebody, it is an expression of fellowship. It's an expression of acceptance in a sense. And here you are eating with them. Peter, Peter, we're so embarrassed. Peter, for all of your life, you've kept the rules of your faith and your, your nation And now, Peter, you would do such a vile thing. Well, look at what Peter says. And again, this is kind of uh, retelling, summarizing the story. Dr. Luke is very good. If you look in the book of Acts, as you study through, Dr. Luke is very good about repeating certain stories and, and bringing them to mind to somehow help his readers and help those who are um, experiencing this event, helping those catch a little bit of vision of what God is doing. So here's what Peter says. He explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, verse 5, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object descending like a great sheet, let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. When I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed you must not call common. This was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. That very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house, who said to him, Send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as he began to speak, as upon us at the beginning, he said. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? So, They're contending with Peter, and Peter just simply tells the story. And he says, I want you to know what happened. 
And I want you to see, again, Peter recognizes God's initiative in this. I mean, it, as you read through the story, you hear him over and over again speak about how God was the one who spoke. The Holy Spirit is the one who sent. God is the one who initiated this whole event. And he says, we went. And I knew that God was sending me. And I knew that God was accepting, was bringing these individuals into the family. And the true proof? The Holy Spirit. Notice the way he says, he says, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. It was kind of like Peter said, it was, it was experiencing Pentecost all over again. You remember Pentecost for those of us? That, that's what he's saying. For those of us who were here and we were here in Jerusalem and, and the Holy Spirit came upon us at the day of Pentecost. Do you remember that? That wonderful event, that dramatic moment in the life of our church? He says, it was like I was reliving that again. Except this time, the Holy Spirit was coming upon the Gentiles. And who was I to contend with the Holy Spirit? How was I going to argue? How was I going? He says, this is what has happened. It may be scandalous. It, it may be scandalous for you to, to hear and for you to see. But God was the one who was working his own will and his salvation in the people, in the Gentiles that I was sent to. Well, verse 18 says, when they heard these things, they became silent. Don't you love one of those moments where the contenders just simply have to be silent? I, I mean, where... You recount the story of God and you recount how He has worked. And when it's all thought through and it's all said and it's all done, there's not a whole lot else you can say. And for those that were detractors that were trying to take away from the work of God, they just fell silent. And they glorified God. Saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. They understood the significance of Acts 10. I mean, even these who had contended, as they were coming together as a church, the church in Jerusalem, they said, what has happened is God has worked among the Gentiles, and now he has allowed them to experience life through repentance. And they celebrated. And they gave God the glory. It was a scandal. It was a scandal for the, those who had lived under the Jewish ritual and customs. It was a scandal. But they recognized it was a scandal of grace. That the Gentiles had seen the Spirit of God work in their lives. And that they had received the grace of God. What is grace? The unmerited favor of God. So many of you have heard that definition. It means that you've done absolutely nothing to deserve it. Absolutely nothing. And when you think of 
Cornelius and the, the Gentiles, well, yes, they had some good about them. They had tried to serve the Lord and all of that. But the Gentiles, overall, as a group of individuals, what did we deserve? What did we do to deserve salvation? Nothing. The Jewish people themselves had not done anything. The grace had been shown to them, and now they said grace has been shown to the Gentiles. Somebody get up and begin celebrating and rejoicing because life has come. Well, you see the scandal in verses 1 through 18. Then you see the scandal spread. Beginning in verse 19, it says, Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. So Dr. Luke says that after the persecution of Stephen, when things were uh, very intense and difficult there in Jerusalem, that that persecution actually pushed out those early believers and they started going to all these other cities. Remember again how God takes the most difficult situations and he uses them for his glory. That's what he did, okay? Because of persecution, the word of God spread. But it says here that they were only going to the Jews. I mean, that was very natural for them. They would go and they would find the Jewish bodies, the the synagogue, and they would preach or they would share or they would find families. So they were going preaching only to the Jews. Verse 20, but some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who when they had come to Antioch spoke to the Hellenist preaching the Lord Jesus. Hellenist. Basically those individuals that were Greek-speaking, they had been immersed in Greek culture. They, they probably still had some of, well, they certainly still had some of their Jewish uh, belongings, but, but at the same time, they were raised in a Greek type of world. In Jerusalem, they were Aramaic-speaking Jews, basically. In these outer portions, in these outer places, you had these individuals who had believed and they were trusting, and it says, they come to trust Jesus Christ. Verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. So here they're going. Antioch is a relatively large church. Uh, some people say it was the third largest in the Roman Empire. Anywhere from like 500 to 800,000 people. That's a pretty big city, even today, right? That's only what? 20,000 more than the rest and something like that. It's only about 30,000 more than Tupelo, I think. Tupelo, Mississippi. Five, 800,000. It, it was a place that was mainly Gentile. I mean, there were a significant number of Jews. Estimates put anywhere between twenty-five and 50,000 Jews that were there. So that was a significant, substantial number of Jewish people. But yet it was a Gentile city. So if you're going to preach and share, eventually the message is going to get to the Gentiles because it's a Gentile city. And some of them are preaching and some of them are teaching and, and now it's going to the Gentiles. And people are believing. Uh, you've got to love these summary statements that Dr. Luke gives, something like, and it says, hand of the Lord is with them. A great number believed, turned to the Lord. Great number. 
Well, that's great. But remember, we at Jerusalem, we just, we're, we're just getting accustomed to Gentiles coming into the church now. And for you to intentionally go and try to bring Gentiles, because it was okay as long as it was just kind of like God initiated this and God speaking here. But, I mean, visions and all that, we're okay with that. But now you're intentionally going... Verse 22 says, The news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. So they called a committee meeting. Got to get together. You hear what's happening? Hey, you hear, you hear what's happening up in Antioch? I mean, Antioch is kind of out there. and uh, You hear what's going on? I mean, they're, they're intentionally bringing Gentiles in now. What do, we, what do we think about this? What are we going to do about this? So they dispatched a representative. Because remember, at this point in the life of the church, the church at Jerusalem is basically the mother church of all the other churches that are being established. All the other church plants, basically, Jerusalem is the mother church. Because they've all gone out from Jerusalem. And here... They said, we got to find out what's going on. we got to see. They send out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. Anybody happy they chose Barnabas? And maybe Barnabas volunteered. I don't know, but they chose Barnabas. Barnabas is kind of like that peacemaker. He's that individual that can build bridges. We've seen that already in the Scripture. Remember when uh, Saul had been saved and he eventually made his way to the Jerusalem church? They were skeptical about him, right? I mean, can you imagine Jerusalem Baptist Church and how skeptical they were of everybody? I mean, they were skeptical of Saul because they thought he was just coming in and pretending he might take names, he might try to report us. You have them getting concerned about Cornelius and the Gentiles, and they're trying to check everything out. They're trying to make sure that they place everything under their authority. And they... But Barnabas goes. Verse 23. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Barnabas walks in. He looks around. He begins to talk with people. And it says, when he had seen the grace of God, he was glad. I say I am so proud that they chose Barnabas. Because... If they had chosen somebody else, and you know those kind of people that could have been chosen, you've served with a few of them on committees, haven't you? Or you've sat by them in worship services. Don't be looking around. Saw a couple of you. Don't do that. It's not nice. You know the people, the guy that I told you about, that I always had to come, and he told me every Sunday almost, he reminded me quite often that he had been gifted with a spiritual gift of criticism, he told me. 
No joke. Saw a former pastor the other day that's serving there now. He said, hey, have you ever, you know what this guy tells me his spiritual gift is? I said, yeah, I know what he says it is, criticism. He told you that too? I said, yes. What he believes. Thank God they didn't call him to Antioch. Can you imagine? Well, the greeters weren't out welcoming folks today. You know, I walked in, nobody said a word to me. For, or I walked in and they weren't singing the doxology like I thought they would have been singing. I mean, to pick it up. Barnabas, he comes in and it says, when he had seen the grace of God. I mean, it was like it was just manifest. You didn't have to ask people. It was just like the grace of God was on display in this place. I think that's incredible too. I mean, I have read that scripture so many different times. And and every time it just captures my heart to know that you can have a place of worship. And we do hopefully have a place of worship where the grace of God is on constant display. That when people walk in, they would see how God had demonstrated his favor to his people. Even though we did not deserve it, we had found favor with him. It is my prayer that every time somebody walks into the doors at Temple Baptist Church, or every time they see a member of Temple Baptist Church out in this community, that they would see the grace of God. Because you and I, you and I are visual examples of God's grace. Because no one, not one of us, deserved the blessing or the salvation or the ministry that he's allowed us to experience. Not one of us. And people ought to know that and see that and experience that. Barnabas walked in, he had seen the grace of God, and he was glad. He was probably thinking on his way up there, now, how am I going to encourage them and speak? And what kind of report am I going to give to that Committee, when I get back to Jerusalem, I know so-and-so on there is going to want details. I've got to come. But when he walked in and he had seen the grace, he was glad. He knew what he could say. He knew that God was in this. And it doesn't surprise us that Barnabas, who has been nicknamed the son of encouragement, he encourages them all. Encourages them all. Now, I don't take anything away from Paul's ministry. We're going to see it in a moment. I don't take anything away from Peter's ministry. I don't take anything away from John's or James or Philip or any of the others. But how about the ministry of old Barnabas in the New Testament? One who encourages You know, we need Paul's and we need Peter's and we need Philip's. We need James. We need John. We need all those folks in our church. But we especially need a Barnabas to walk with us and to encourage us. In moments of the church's life where maybe we're experiencing difficulty or or pain, it's in the moment of that church's life where a Barnabas steps up and encourages. Here, he encourages them. He says, you keep, you keep going. 
for he was a good man, it says. In verse 25, then Barnabas departed for Tarsus. Tarsus? What's he going to Tarsus for? To seek Saul. The verb there is that he was going intentionally to search for him, to find him. He went to get Saul. Now, God brings Saul to Barnabas' mind. Barnabas' encouraging heart all of a sudden turns to Saul. Now, depending on the timeline of Saul's life here, some individuals think that he could have, it could have been 10 years since his conversion at Damascus or the road to Damascus, and now Barnabas seeking him out. 10 years. Pretty long time, isn't it? Ten years. You know what can happen in ten years? Ten years. All the things that could transpire. And yet, he's been in Tarsus. We're not really told what he's doing. I believe he's still ministering for the Lord somehow. Still speaking for the Lord. But Barnabas, after all this time, he thinks, he says, I need to go get, um, I need to go get Brother Saul. Because you know this is a job for him. And Tarsus really wasn't that far away from Antioch. If you look at it on a map, it wasn't that far away. So he said, you know what? We'll go get Saul. We'll bring him in. He'll be an extraordinary teacher and preacher for these individuals. Verse 26, so when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. So here's Barnabas, the encouraging one, goes up, gets Saul, brings him down, and they're teaching and they're preaching, and they do this for a whole year to disciple his people there at Antioch. And it says the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Kind of like... Um, Herodians you might find in the New Testament. The idea was they were associated with Herod. They aligned themselves with Herod. And now this name is given to believers to say basically they aligned themselves with Christ. Some believe, of course, that this could have even been a derogatory term that had been given of those in the community that they were a little Christ. They were just trying to be like Christ. Not a bad name. Because it does speak to our unique identity in the Son, the Lord Jesus. Because who should we be like? Christ. Who should we be associated with? Christ. Who should our worship exalt? Christ. They were first called Christians as they testified at Antioch. So they were taught and they were discipled, hopefully into the image of of Christ. It was a scandal. I mean, when the news came back, they again, they were thinking to themselves, we just according to Dr. Luth, the way he's lined this out, it, it's like we just accepted the Gentiles and now we're going after them intentionally. That's scandalous. Well, it was again a scandal of grace. A scandal of grace. Well, let me finish this up in the last few verses here. I started just to kind of stop there. But you know us preachers can't stop sometimes. We just got to keep going. But especially when you see this 
last section of verses in Acts 11, to me this is almost scandalous. But it's again a scandal of grace. It's awesome. Look at this. It says, And in these days prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. One of the things about Dr. Luke, and it's really all the New Testament writers, but specifically about Dr. Luke, is the way he writes, he writes in so many ways as a historian. And he writes to make sure that he is accurately speaking to the events, to the time, to the circumstances. And it shouldn't surprise you that there are many other historical documents that speak about a famine that occurs. When? During the time of Claudius. Now, we don't need all those other things to tell us this is true. But it just reminds us that Dr. Luke writes with accuracy. And he writes under the inspiration, the guiding inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So it, he says, there's this prophet that come, these prophets that come. Agabus stands up. This is what's going to happen. Verse 29, Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did. And sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Anything that seems scandalous in that? You see, to me, isn't this amazing that you begin in the first of the chapter, the church at Jerusalem is trying to decide whether or not Gentiles can really even be saved, or if they are, how they have to come through Jewish ritualism. And then they come to the point of saying, hey, should we even intentionally go after Gentiles? Or, or what should we do there? All those questions and all those things that they're having to decide. And then when you get to the end of chapter 11, what's happening? The Gentile church, primarily Gentile church in Antioch, they're sending aid to their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. I think that's awesome. I, I think it could be almost scandalous. I mean, for you as a Jewish individual or from Jewish heritage, and here you are in the church, and all of a sudden you realize that you are dependent upon a primarily Gentile church? In the beginning, that could seem scandalous that you're having to take from the Gentiles. And yet, once again, it is a scandal of grace. Because the church in Jerusalem, while being, yes, the mother church, had in many ways responded with caution, suspicion, and everything that was going on in the work of the Gentiles. And God had shown His grace to them in the sense that He allows these other churches, He allows the church at Antioch, these other believers, to take care of them during a moment of famine. I think that's a scandal of grace. That God once again has shown His goodness and His graciousness to His people. That He has welcomed in the nations. He has placed them right in the very context 
of a local body of believers, the church. And now he is using them as he disciples them. He is using them to minister to others. What a great progression of God's work among the nations. And for us, again, to recognize that we're a part of those nations. We were. And that God grafted us into his family. He didn't, allow, he didn't make us secondary citizens, but he brought us right to the table of fellowship with other believers. And then he allowed us to grow into his image and then to turn around and be ministers to our brothers and sisters to other individuals that could come into our lives. It's a beautiful picture of God's work. And even when human minds saw it as a scandal, God saw it as an expression of grace. May we understand the scandal of grace that was brought forth for us. Because you know even in Jesus. Even in his death upon the cross. That cursed tree. Even in that scandal. What has Jesus done for us? God done for us? Well he has brought us grace. More than we could ever know or appreciate. He has extended his favor to us. That we might not only be saved, but we might be able to serve. May we know that scandalous grace in our lives. Let's pray together. Father, oh God, how many times we should say thank you. And even if we were to utter it thousands of times, Lord, we would just be beginning to express our gratitude to you our grace Lord as we've read through this passage tonight as we've been reminded once again of how you have not only called the nations but you have taken them and you have placed them right at your family's table Father I pray that you would allow us to recommit our efforts to reaching intentionally those who do not know you no matter what their background not, no matter what their uh, status in life Lord that we would reach them and Father that we would continue to disciple and do those things that we should do so that Lord together collectively we can serve you thank you for this family of believers tonight in this place as we go Allow us to see a display of your grace. And may we manifest it this week in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand for this moment of invitation and reflection? Would you come as God calls you tonight?